Well, thank you to the worship team for, for leading us and reminding us, even as we sang that last song, that the grace of God flows like a river to the lowest place. And if you are at the lowest place, then you can have confidence that there is grace that will flow down to you. And that's why we're here, is to hear, we're at this place here, to hear in our ears about the grace of God. And we heard that as well as Pastor Paul led us to the liturgy. I'd, I'd invite you now to turn in your Bibles to Paul's letter to Titus. Titus chapter 1. I'm going to read the first nine verses, Titus chapter 1, and I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's Word, even as we read together. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. This is the very Word of God. Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in His word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me now? Almighty God, as we have read your word, we thank you for the gift that it is. It is your communication to us, your final, infallible, inerrant word, and we give you praise for your word this morning. We praise you that it is of your grace that you have given us your word. It is an undeserved favor. And so we live under that grace. We live even as your grace has flowed even to us in the very lowest place. Lord, I pray that you would grant your great grace and patience even to our wicked land. We lament the fact that we are so full of sin in this country. We see 
that you have refrained from judgment upon us in so many ways, and so your mercy has been manifest. O Lord, even this morning, have mercy upon us. We are truly a people of unclean lips, and we live among a people of unclean lips. We lament, even this morning, the prevalence of child murder in this country. We pray that you would grant repentance to us all and and across this land. We, We pray that you would have mercy upon us as we turn from our evil ways. And Lord, we are struck and we We rejoice with brothers and sisters in the United States as they have seen the answer to their prayers, praying for 49 years, five months, and two days to have then this legalization of child murder be overturned in the courts. We praise you for that fact, Lord. But, oh Lord, we pray for our land. We lament We lament all of the murder of unwanted children. All of the unwanted babies. Children that have maybe had Down syndrome. Or Williams syndrome. Or birth defects. Or heart problems. The the murder of these children. and, And even the murder of children who are simply deemed inconvenient. Lord, we praise you that you are a God of mercy, a God of great grace. When we think of even the Young's Farm VBS and all of its many years of ministry, we praise you for children, children who can know and love you. We pray, Lord, for the advance of the gospel among our children in this church, that they would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and so be saved. We thank you for their lives and we pray that all of us adults would then bear them a faithful witness, a faithful witness to Jesus Christ. We thank you that there is forgiveness of sins in you, that you are a forgiving and good God. We thank you that even there are mothers and fathers who have murdered their children, and yet who can repent of their sins, who can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and have even that sin forgiven and their guilt washed away. O Lord, only you can do such a thing. Help us to believe it. And we do pray that your mercy would prevail in this church and in this land. O Lord, cause us to glorify you for such grace and mercy. Cause our hearts to be turned to you in humility before you, but praising you for the kind of God that you really are. O Lord, We ask, even as we hear your word now, that you would lift our eyes up and that we would behold you and your great character and that even seeing you would transform how we think, how we live, how we speak, and that we would then be people who do good. Oh Lord, make it so among us now, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.
during the beginning of his ministry, the Apostle Paul had written to the church at Galatia, and he had said to the Galatians, he had said, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of God. That was what he said at the beginning of his ministry. Then, near the end of his ministry, he wrote a letter to Titus, one of his one of his, his guys that he had been mentoring, one of the guys that he had been raising up. And he basically wrote this letter, a letter to Titus, that was an intending for Titus to do good, to continue to do good. Just like he had told the Galatians, he's telling Titus, keep on doing good. And so there's a sense in which Christians ought to be do-gooders. And if I use that phrase, do-gooder, it's, it's actually tainted. When we think of somebody who's a do-gooder, we think of someone who is self-righteous and who is always meddling in other people's business, trying to do good, but actually quite selfish. And our cynical age then now thinks that a do-gooder is someone who is not admirable, someone that we don't really want to be like. But yes, we should be do-gooders. We should do good. That's what a Christian should do. And that's what Paul was calling Titus to do. And, and even when we think even in this contemporary moment, as I mentioned in my prayer, just to acknowledge the good done by the overturning of Roe versus Wade by the U.S. Supreme Court in the United States after 49 years, five months, and two days. That's a good thing. And Christians ought to pray to the end of child, for the end of child murder. That's a, those are good things to do. But when we think about doing good, how, how can we do good? How is that possible? Well, we must start with God. We have to look to God. We need God to help us to do good. It's the only way. So if you're here this morning and you are going through troubles in your marriage or you're having troubles at work or you're having troubles in this church or maybe the church where you're coming from, it doesn't matter what the troubles are, what the, the, the possible bad things that are going on, you must start with God. You must go to God. You must begin with who is God. And with, when you begin by looking at God, you start there and you consider God. If you do that, then it reorders everything else. If you just look at the problems, even social problems, for example, if you look at them and focus on them, you will not have the resources to do anything good about them. You must begin by looking to the good God. And that's what Paul does. Paul is writing to Titus, and he begins by looking to the highest good, as it were, looking to God first. 
And that's my hope, is that this morning, in the swirl of all that's going on in your life, you are so drawn into that swirl of things that this morning you will take a step back and see what it is to have God as the focal point and all else then reordered around Him. And when you do that, then you are then able to do what is right, to do what is good. And that's my hope for us all this morning. Now, in Paul's letter to Titus, you've got it there, open there, it begins with this this statement of self-identification that Paul gives. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is owned by God. Imagine that. He's owned by God. He's saying, I'm a slave of God. He's owned by God, and he's authorized by Jesus Christ. Authorized to be his sent one. Authorized to be his apostle. So he is both owned and authorized. That is what Paul is. And that's how you can view then the Apostle Paul uniquely. But this also tells us something about the character of God. What is God like? God causes people to belong to Him. He causes people to be close to Him. He causes people even to then be representatives of Him and to actually carry out His will in the world. That's what he causes. He even causes people to speak on behalf of him and to reorient all of creation toward him. That is the kind of God that we're talking about. And Paul starts off, in essence, he's saying, God is God and I am not. I am owned and authorized by God, but I'm not the God. He's God and I am not. And that is the primary, fundamental reality that we all need to be reminded of, is that God is God, and we are not. Now, the aim, of course, the aim of being owned and authorized, in this case, we have it there right off the start, the aim of being owned and authorized is for the sake, Paul says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life. So Paul is saying that he exists for the sake of the saints. Not the super spiritual people. That's not what a saint is. A saint is simply someone who is a believer in Jesus Christ. Their sins are forgiven. That's a saint. Not not the super spiritual ones. Anybody who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ is a saint. And so that's what he's for. Paul exists for the sake of the saints. He lives for the sake of their spiritual life. And it's not just, just any, any spiritual life of anybody's spirituality out there, but it's the inner life of God's hand-picked people. That's what Paul is concerned. What's going on inside of these people? The inner life of these hand-picked ones. The inner life of faith. The inner life of knowing truth. Paul is all about that inner life of the elect, as they are called. 
But then it's not just a privatized religion. It's not just, oh, well, I believe these things inside and it doesn't affect me on the outside or nobody else would know. No, the idea is, is that it's not just in my head and no one knows. It, it's not just a, a Nicodemus religion where you go to Jesus at night. But, but Paul also exists for the outworking of that interfaith. The outworking of it into an outward godliness. So that you're believing from the inside, you're looking to God from the inside, but it's expressed outwardly in what you say and what you do. It's an outward character. And even this term godliness, well, what does it mean? It's, it's God-likeness. Well, not that, oh, we're all little gods, but more the sense that we then have an outward character and an outward manner that resembles God's character. That's what it is then to be godly. So Paul's setting this up. He's saying then the purpose of his ministry is, is kind of inside and out. It's both. It's inside and out. It's to see people spiritually formed into godly people. And, and then those people, then they're being made fit for heaven. They're being prepared for heaven. And they can only have this entrance because Jesus Christ, God the Son, the incarnate one, embodied, made man, came. And according to the incarnation, he was owned and authorized as the suffering servant. And he shed his blood for those whom he especially loves. Even the objects of his distinct, special, choosing love. That particular love. The kind of love that a husband has exclusively for his wife and for no other. That is the kind of love that Christ offers for his bride, the church, the elect, the saints. So this is good news. This is the good news of the gospel. It gives eternal hope. And it's the kind of hope, it's sort of, it's sort of like a hope that, that's a rope. And it's a rope that's tied around your heart. And it actually pulls you towards heaven, towards the Lord. It draws you closer and closer to God. It's pulling you ever closer to Him. Even when you feel draggy, it's just going to keep drawing you to Him. The love of God towards you. It just keeps pulling you in. And that is the kind of love of the kind of God who Paul serves, and who we worship here this morning. Even if you're feeling draggy, which you probably are, even though the service time is still the same, you didn't have to come to Sunday school, and you all slept in. I know you're tired. No, that's just my household. Um, it's tough to get to church when you've got extra time. But this hope of eternal life, then, is this great future focus. You know, do you, do you think about the future? I think about the future all the time. I, I you know, I, I think about it. I, I think about how, how am I going to get through each day? What's happening next week? I'm, I'm thinking about, worrying about. Will the Lord permit all of my schemes and plans? Will the Lord make other plans happen? We can't know the future, but we can know God. And this is what Paul's, Paul's getting at. 
because God makes promises. He, he makes promises. We can trust Him. We can't know the future. We can know God, and that's more important. So there's a, there's a quotation. Calvin Heinrichs reminded me of it when we were at the church picnic. It's from A.W. Tozer, and A.W. Tozer said this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let's say it again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now Paul, he labors to bring people to God, to to point them to God, to have them think about God, to focus on God, to hope in God. That's, That's all that he's doing. He keeps bringing people to God because what they think about God is the most important thing about them. And this is where then the hope of eternal life rests. Because eternal life is guaranteed by a promise. It's guaranteed by a promise. I I don't know about you, but I'm having a hard time finding anybody today who can keep a promise. Can you find a politician who can keep a promise? They're as rare as hen's teeth. I know you've got to think, do hens have teeth? No, they don't. There's none. That's an agrarian metaphor for you. You can go look it up in a book or visit a farm. Anyways, just a little break there. We see promises that aren't kept by institutions, by marriage partners, even yourself. Think of the promises that you have not kept. See, we all have good intentions of being promise keepers, but we are promise breakers. But the present and future security of a Christian believer is not based on their performance, but it is based on a promise. It is based on a promise, more than a mere commitment. It is a binding guarantee. It is the promise, Paul says, of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in His Word. That's a promise. Now, we know promises are cheap from liars. But God doesn't lie. God never lies. The pagan gods lie. The politicians and the pundits and the scientists, they can lie. Your own supposed inner voice will lie. But God never lies. And that's why He's so distinct. Because everything else is corrupt. But God never lies. And so He made the promise of eternal life He made it before the quantum particles and before the solar systems and before the time-space continuum was even created. Before ages began. 
before time was even a measurement. Before that, God made a promise. And at the proper time, he manifested that promise, the promise of eternal life. He manifested it in his word, in his word. Now, cowboys used to believe your word was your bond. They all, you know, everybody used to say that. You didn't need to write it down. You didn't need a contract. If you said it, my word's my bond. Yeah, been around cowboys, you know, they lie too. You have all kinds of crooked cowboys. Uh, but God doesn't lie. And that's why then His Word, God's Word, is so trustworthy. It's, it's so credible. It's guaranteed. It is a bond. God's Word is His bond. It's without error. It's without the possibility of error. Because God never lies, then His Word is His bond. And that Word, that Word from God, the God who never lies, is then the connection point between God as God and then Paul as owned and authorized. Now, if you know anything about the book of Titus, it's, much, it's a lot about the application that Paul has for the church and for ministering the church. But you have to start with the God who never lies. And if you don't get that, you will misunderstand what Paul is trying to do as he counsels Titus and this church, would-be church and churches in Crete. Now it's because Paul was owned and authorized to preach God's word, his never-lying word of promise, and that promise was at the proper time manifested in his word. It was through Paul's preaching He says, the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. So the saving God commanded me to preach this word. That's what Paul's saying. The saving God, he wants this word of promise to go out. I don't lie, God says. He never lies and he's sending this out to Paul. Paul, you're going to preach this word. You're going to send out this promise. So people can live on that promise. They can have the promise of eternal life. They can know. And it's binding. It gives great comfort then to rely on that. So then Paul, as the owned and authorized apostle, authorized to preach the promise of the never-lying God, Paul then has this as the basis for his letter to Titus. And so he calls Titus, he says in verse 4, his true child in a common faith. His true child in a common faith. And from what we know, okay, just think for a second, Paul wasn't married. And secondly, Paul was a Jew. Now, Titus wasn't his boy. And Titus, from what we know with reference in the book of Acts, Titus wasn't a Jew. So how does this work? But the point is, actually, even in this opening greeting, it illustrates what happens when God is God. When God is God and people share in the same promise together, the promise of the God who never lies, when they share in that together, they become kin. They become family. 
They're joined together. And so Paul writes to Titus, not only as the own and authorized apostle, own and authorized by God, but as a spiritual father to Titus, to his son, the son who is in the family business, the business of telling others about the God who never lies. That's, That's what Paul's doing. And maybe you've been coming to this church Maybe you're getting a little bit deprogrammed, I hope, from some of your ideas about religion, your ideas about God that have been weak or wrong. This is really then what you need to know. Just as Paul is stressing this to Titus, you need to know that God never lies. And this is so critical. Even when we think about A.W. Tozer's quote, I wonder if he kind of picked this up from the earlier Puritan Thomas Brooks who said this, Every man is that really which he is secretly. Never tell me how handsomely, how neatly, how bravely this or that man acts his part before others. But tell me, if you can, how he acts his part before God in his closet. For the man is that certainly which he is secretly. There are many who sweat upon the stage that are cold in their closets. It's a very Puritan-like saying. But you know, there's lots of people. They're, they're good in public, but you wonder. You wonder what they're like when nobody sees them. And how do they pray before God? Do they pray relying upon God's mercy, the God who never lies? Do they really have that warmth in their heart. Well, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he had this warm devotional life toward God, and then it made him warm-hearted to spread the promises of God to others. And so the question as we as we kind of get launched in here is, is, is who are you in secret? Who are you in secret? Are, are you resting on God's promises? And you're resting on them because you honestly do trust Him and you trust that He never lies? Is that, is that your orientation to God? Or are you kind of ignoring that and you're playing the role here of outward respectability? You're at church, but you don't really know God. Some people are absolute strangers to themselves. And it's that kind of phoniness then that gives the do-gooders the bad name. But Paul tells us that leaders in the church must do good because they love good. And that's the second thing that we're going to see in verses 5 through 8. Paul greets Titus then with that foundational claim for everything, that greeting at the end of verse 4. He says, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. You see, without that, you can do nothing. That's the start. But the second thing we need to see here then is that God's man must love what is good. And Paul then, going on from verse 5, he's going to give some of the backstory to this letter. He'd been imprisoned, if you know Paul's story at all. He'd been imprisoned, recorded in the book of Acts. He'd been imprisoned in Rome. But then the book of Acts ends, and we don't hear the rest of the story, and Paul actually got released. Sometimes when things are so gloomy, 
even thinking about people praying for the end of Roe Ro v. Wade in the U.S. and different things, you can just think, oh, well, it's never going to change. But Paul, you know, maybe people thought, oh, he's never going to get out of jail. But he did. He got out of jail. And he went then and did ministry after that. And then he was imprisoned a second time, and then he was martyred, likely under the Roman Emperor Nero. But in that, in that in-between time, in, in between the two imprisonments, well, then you have Paul writing now this letter to Titus. Uh, incidentally, Paul's writing from Nicopolis, which would have been, we would call it, you know, a resort town. Uh, so, you know, maybe it's okay that you can go to a resort. You know, if Paul did, then maybe you can let yourself go to a resort. Uh, just try to, you know, encouraging some of the husbands maybe that they, they can stop being cheap and they could actually go take their wife to an all-inclusive. You can thank me later, wives. Um, he's writing from the, he's said, I'm going to spend the winter at this resort in Nicopolis. It's, you know, beautiful western side of Greece. He's writing to, to Titus, and Titus is all about Crete. I, it's, it's, so it's not, about the, it's not about the resort. It's about this other place. He said, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So then the setting of this letter is that Mediterranean island of Crete. And Crete had this horrible reputation. It was a reputation for corruption, for crime, for treachery, for fraud. You know, it would have been the call center for all the phone scams. It would have been in Crete. Uh, it would have been the clubhouse for the Hells Angels and the Chinese triads and the Sicilian Mafia. You put it all there, it would have been on Crete. That's, that's the kind of place it was. It was, it was lots of bad dudes. The culture was corrupt and nobody could be trusted. Now, Paul is then saying that from among these people, from among these people, Leaders were to be appointed by Titus, who was then delegated by the own and authorized Apostle Paul. And you might think, not much to work with. Right? Not, not much to work with in this culture, this Cretan culture. You know, what are you going to get? You're going to get then, you're going to get elders in the church who are a bunch of crooks, who are a bunch of abusers. Because Crete's full of those kinds of people. So is that what you get in church? But see, this is where then we have to come back to the foundation that Paul has already laid. If God never lies and His promises are true, then they actually create a new family. And then the leaders that God uses are actually going to be men made new. Men made new. They're going to be distinct. They will live in line with God's never-lying promises. That's what they're going to conform to, His never-lying promises. They'll love God. They'll love His integrity. They'll love His consistency. They'll love His power. They'll love His word of promise. They will love it and cherish it. They will love God who is true and who is the ultimate good. And because of who they love and what they love, they then will be men 
whom Crete had never seen before. There will be men made new. New men. Godly men. Christian men. And that will be totally distinct and new for Crete. And verses 6 to 8, now then they're going to give us the character qualifications for these elders, for these presbyters, for these, these men who are equivalent with pastors. Now, they are parallel to the qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and you might be familiar with those. Don Carson, I think it was, I'm not sure on this quote, I think it was Don Carson said that this list of qualities and characteristics, this list is remarkable for being unremarkable. It's not like, oh, well, these guys, they're just these, these super spiritual gurus that nobody is like. No, no, not really. It's simply a list describing a consistency between the inner life and the outer life. The inner life and the outer life are consistent. When God is loved on the inside, He will be followed on the outside. And that's what these characteristics describe. So here's the list, and I'm going to do something different. I'm actually going to quote verse 6 from the King James Version. Now, some of you might be cheering. Some of you might be puzzled. But I actually think the translation in the King James Version is actually better than what the ESV has here. And the King James in verse 6 says this, If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. So that's what verse 6 says. Then the first thing we see in verse 6 The first thing to say is that this elder, this pastor, this presbyter, he's not a sinless leader. He's not sinless. But he is blameless. He is blameless. And and what does that mean? Well, that means that even though he's still a sinner, when he sins, he repents. And he turns from his sin, and he turns to God, And he lives in a closer embrace of the grace of God and the mercy of God and the forgiveness of sins so that he enjoys the grace and peace of God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. That's what it is to be blameless. He's not living in unrepentant sin. He's not living in hidden sin. He's not living like that. He sins, but when he does, he turns from the sin and he looks to Christ in the gospel. And he enjoys the Father's forgiving love. So he's not perfect. You can just ask his wife. You can ask my wife. I'm I'm not perfect. But, secondly though, he is a one-woman man. He's a one-woman man. The husband of one wife, it says. He's literally, the Greek is, he's a one-woman man. Like Paul, or like Jesus. He doesn't necessarily have to be married. But he lives a life of integrity so that if he is married, his love is exclusive, it is particular, and it is especially limited to his own wife and to no other. So this leader, he can't have any kind of an adulterous affair. He can't be be giving his eyes to other women, even if they're on the internet in pixels. They can 
such a man, he, he can say to their wives, and their wives will believe it, he can say, I only have eyes for you. Sorry, just embarrassed my wife. Just thought, I might as well look at my wife while I'm doing this. Since the Greek term here means literally one woman man, there should be no debate, no debate at all whether women can be pastors or elders. It shouldn't even be here. They, they can't. And just as every man who is not a one woman man can't be an elder or pastor. And if you're coming here from a church that has had women pastors or a denomination that affirms women pastors, I need to be very clear. We don't believe that women can be pastors. This is because God, who never lies, has told us through his owned and authorized Apostle Paul that an elder pastor overseer can only be a one-woman man, a qualified one-woman man. Now, we can look further at the inner biblical logic of, of why this is, and we can go back to God's creation design in Genesis 1 and 2. But this text, along with 1 Timothy chapter 3, is unmistakably clear. So any church or denomination that rejects this, if they change it, if they deny it, if they, fall, if they, if they do this, if they reject God's word, if they they want to change it, they want to deny it, then what they're doing is they're making a false claim that God is a liar. They're saying God's owned and authorized representative, Paul, is a liar. And the church then, they're, they're actually saying to all the churches that want to follow the Word of God and want to follow God, they're saying those churches, what they say, they're liars too. But that's false. God is true. And so I can say with Paul, let God be true and every man a liar. Romans 3, 4. So this is where we have to be very clear and just let the Bible speak. That's what it is. Now the other sticky bit in this passage, if you haven't already tuned out, um, I'm hoping you haven't, the other sticky bit is about pastor's kids. It's, you know, personal for me because I've got kids and they're pastor's kids. Now in the ESV, which is in your pews, the ESV translation says that they have to be believers. Now this means that somehow a pastor has to guarantee that his, that his children will become Christians, even though he has no power to miraculously convert their hearts. Now, I think the better translation is actually from the old King James Version, which speaks of faithful children. And by that expression, PKs, you know, you know the church lingo, that's pastor's kids, PKs, you know, it's no, they're notorious, right? PKs are always wild and unruly. Uh, they're always bad. You know, what's a, you know, that's the, that's the stigma, right? Um, but, but the PKs, they're, they're to be faithful to their father and mother. The father and mother who train them, who teach them in the things of God, who share the gospel with them, who point them to Christ. Th those PKs ought then to be lovingly shepherded in such a way that they follow the order 
of the pastor's home. And then they're attentive to the pastor's fatherly teaching, which according to 1 Timothy 3, he has to do that even to qualify himself to minister further. So to minister in the church. Now I I think then uh, faithful children fits the context, the language, and the theology of Paul better. I think saying that they must be believers is saying more than what the text is implying. And just practically speaking, do I need to talk about um, John MacArthur's daughter when I was at Master's College, or Don Carson's son, or Mark Dever's daughter, or Michael Haken's daughter, or Ligon Duncan's son, or John Piper's son, or J.C. Ryle's son? I mean, I can just go on and on and on. Were they, are they to pull the pin on their ministries? Just stop? None of them, none of these kids, as far as I know, could be accused of riot. They weren't wild. None would be described as unruly when they were living at home. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, verse 4, he must manage his own household well with dignity, keeping his children submissive. Well, that's it. They're to be faithful in that way and be submissive. But as PKs, they're not necessarily converts. They're not always acting maturely. But it still shows, nevertheless, the kind of home the pastor, elder, overseer has. He shepherds his family in a way that he's going to shepherd the church. And so his home is actually a place of grace. A place of undeserved favor. It's a place of grace just as the church is a place of grace. Of undeserved favor showing the kindness of the Lord. Every Christian home really your Christian home, every church should be a place of grace. And this is what we should all aspire to. I mean, that's the best place for a child to hear the gospel. And if some of the guys that were here for the men's breakfast yesterday, this was the point that Pastor Gavin made in his talk and also in the panel. It's just that then that you're making this place of grace for your children where they can enjoy the undeserved favor of God. And the hope is that God then, through that means, will save your children. But the overseer, the bishop, as he might be called in some translations, the the Greek word is the episkopos, the one who has the scope, scopes out everything, is over and keeping watch, keeping the scope on it all. He's also an elder, a, a presbyteros. He's a presbyter, not necessarily a presbyterian. And so he's going to be described by modeling some things, and he's not going to model other things. And this is where we then get into the list in verse 7. A bishop, King James, not some like archbishop, just, just an elder, an overseer, a pastor, must be blameless. Notice again, blamelessness again. He must be blameless as the steward of God. That is, he, he's owned by God. And he's responsible for God's stuff. It's not his stuff, it's God's stuff. And the things that he is not are these. Again, I'm reading from the King James, but I'll refer to the ESV. He is not self-willed. That means he's not arrogant. He's not self-willed, not arrogant. He's not soon angry. (laughs) Not soon angry. He's not quick-tempered. He's not given to wine. That is, he's not a drunkard. He's not 
a striker. That means he's not violent. And he's not given to filthy lucre, which even if you don't know what lucre is, you probably even from our cultural references understand filthy gain. In other words, gain by deceit. And so the ESV translates, he's not greedy for gain. And, and when you look at that short list there so far, that list disqualifies all of the false teachers on TV. They're disqualified. Done. Over. Don't listen to them. Shut it off. They are disqualified. I would also say it also disqualifies a number of Christian men who think that they ought to be elders, but are not. It's because they're not qualified because they fail in these qualifications. See, but more importantly, and this is where we're getting at, even as Paul is driving this to Titus, more importantly, the overseer's character is revealed by what he loves. What does he love? What, what actually is, does he love and he cherish? Verse 8, again, King James. He is a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, and temperate. See, what we see then as a result is that God, this, this man of God, God's man, and in the plurality, God's men, they love God and they love God's good gifts. He loves the, the warm exchange of, of life together. That, that's hospitality. It's not necessarily how good of a cook you are. Hospitality is the welcome of one person into your inner life and then you being willing to enter into their inner life. That's what hospitality is. And it can happen over dinner. It can happen in a brief conversation. It's just being open-hearted to one another. Elders love that. They love that. They love hospitality in that way. They love good things and, and good people. They love them. They, they don't take the goodness of a transformed character in someone's life. They don't take that for granted. They cherish it. They think, wow, look what God has done. Look at the goodness in this person. It's not inherent to them. It's because God has changed them. They love that. They appreciate then the person who is literally a gift from God. They cherish that. They love God's order, and so they seek to soberly conform to it. They love God's righteousness, so they, so they seek to live in an upright manner. They love God's moral purity. They love it, so then they seek to live holy. And they love God's eternity. And so they seek to live temperately and disciplined with an eternal perspective. Now, if Tozer's dictum still holds what comes into our minds when we think about God as the most important thing about us, if that's true, then for the pastor, his love for God will come out in what he loves and what he doesn't love. You see, these qualities, they reveal his love, his love of what is truly good. These are the, the qualities required for qualification. God's man must have them. But really, all Christian men should have them, and that's a challenge for all the Christian men here. 
And yet there is a further qualification which, God, which God's man, the elder, the pastor, the overseer, and all God's men in pastoral leadership must have. They must love and be able to teach God's Word. They've got to love and be able to teach God's Word. And that's my third point. Back to the ESV in verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy Word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. How do you hold firm to something? Well, you've got to love it. You've got to love it to hold, hold it firm. And the pastor, the elder, the overseer, they must love the trustworthy and faithful Word of God as it has been taught, as it has been delivered by the prophets and the apostles. They must love the God who never lies. And so love then His trustworthy Word, down even given through these authorized Scripture writers. The overseer loves this Word. And of course, God's message is trustworthy, so it's easily loved. Isn't that the case? If somebody's trustworthy, it's easy to love them. If they weren't trustworthy, it's hard. But His Word is trustworthy. It's easy to love His Word. You can come to it so easily and freely. Along with this good kind of love is then a distinct ability, however. It's an ability. Not everybody has it. It is the unique qualifier of a pastor, elder, overseer. A unique qualifier that distinguishes them from other godly Christian men. This overseer must be able to teach. 1 Timothy 3 says the same. He must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is not saying that any teacher is then qualified to be a pastor. That's not the case. No, this is saying that among godly Christian men, some of them will be recognized for their God-given ability a capacity, a skill to instruct in sound doctrine, to instruct in the kind of doctrine that is healthy, and the Greek word is the idea of hygiene. hygiene. It's hygienic. It induces health. That's what it means in sound doctrine. You know, when a horse is crippled, people will say, well, that horse is unsound. That's what they say. It's an unsound horse. You go to sell a horse, is the horse sound? You know, or is it crippled? Well, it's either, it is either fully healthy or it's not. There's no in-between. And so pastors, they have an ability to instruct in sound doctrine. They don't give teaching that spiritually cripples people. They don't introduce defects into the souls of their hearers. They don't stunt their growth. They don't give doctrine that makes their soul, people's souls atrophy. They instruct in doctrine that is sound. It's health-giving. And so this is going to be pretty important, I think, in Crete, because Titus was tasked with appointing elders who would be able to rebuke those who contradict this sound doctrine. Now, how is he going to find these, these elders from a corrupt Cretan culture? How is he going to do this without then having those guys revert to just the ways that they would always do things before, which would have been by violence or manipulation or deception, especially when they're responding to hostility. 
Where is he going to find these guys that are going to be different? How is he going to find some elders who are not just simply going to fight Cretan fire with more Cretan fire? Well, it's because the Cretan elders, these men who would be raised up and appointed, they needed to be new men. New men. New men who loved the God who never lies. And they instruct and rebuke others by the sole measure of what is healthy doctrine or not. So God's man then, he promotes and protects the word of God because it is so good. And pastors and elders and overseers, the plurality of qualified leadership is marked then by doing good, by eternal good, because God is good and they love God. So I close with this then. Ask this question of yourself. Does your view of God match up with your view of pastors? I'm not saying, do you think pastors are God? No, that's not right. No, that's not, that's not what I'm talking about. Does your view of God match up with your view of pastors? You see, many people today, by default, are suspicious of pastors. Now, some pastors warrant suspicion, and they ought to be corrected and disciplined. But some people are just, by default, they're suspicious of pastors because they're suspicious of all authority, and especially when you get down to it, if you could see inside their heart, you would find they're actually suspicious of God. They're suspicious that God isn't going to come through for them. They're suspicious that God is going to pull the rug on them. They'll say the right things, but when it comes to how they actually live, they think that God is not going to keep His word, that God lies. How then, if they won't trust the God who never lies, how would they ever trust God's representatives, God's elders, God's men? Maybe they are suspicious of God. They think that He's well-meaning, but they just don't think He's capable of keeping his promises. And that might be you. And yet God is good. And God does good. And God appoints pastors to be do-gooders in the church for the good of his elect people. Hebrews 13, 17 says, pastors are there for your good. So the question is, will you accept the pastor's efforts at doing good for you? Or are you going to be suspicious? Maybe you just want different pastors or a different kind of pastor. But then maybe you want a different God or a different kind of God. Tozer again to close. The gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea about God. Just as her most significant message is what she says 
about him. End of quote. What we think about God, the God who never lies, that grounds how we think about the Word of God. And it also grounds how we understand the men of God in leadership and the church of God, the bride of Christ. So let's start with God. Let's look to God. And God will do us good in the church. He'll do you good. Do you believe that this morning? Do you? Let's pray together. Almighty God, we ask that you would do us good through the preaching of your word and that we would trust you that you never lie. And based on that, Lord, help us to have hope for tomorrow, hope for the future, hope in the forgiveness and the cleansing of guilt that is sure, that is forever, that is eternal. And we can trust you for that. And we can live then in the freedom, the freedom of the children of God. And we can do good even now. Make it so among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.